For Paul, baptism is a powerful bond that unites people not only with God, but with other believers. Those who call themselves children of God experience a transformation that removes prejudices of race, social class, or gender in favor of true unity in Christ. The second reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the element spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not God's. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you be enslaved to them again? Word of God, word of life. Good morning. Grace and peace to each of you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. I am quite conscious in my preaching to avoid as much as possible making it about myself. Several weeks ago, I did preach a sermon on my experience of chronic pain in order to illuminate my conviction that the Apostle Paul has something to teach us about what it means to persevere in the face of chronic pain. Today, I am going to share with you something that made this sermon preparation rather difficult, and that is that my surgery a year ago not only failed, but has made my neck and shoulders worse, Uh, so much so that I can't write, um, and I'm having difficulty even reading, um, not because of my vision, but because any time my head is tilted forward, it sends sharp pain Uh, down throughout uh, my upper body. Uh, Last night, um, with lots of difficulty, I tried to proceed through writing the sermon so that it would be, as usual, polished, hopefully, and uh, and, uh, presented in kind of a neat, uh, linear 
way, um, but I was unable to do that. Uh, my friend Mark, who's here actually this morning visiting, uh, came over and transcribed the sermon uh, the best he could. I don't normally write that way. Um, so what you're going to hear today is at the beginning a transcription, but then uh, I'm going to go into rabbi professor mode and just try to walk you through the second reading from Galatians in an attempt to get at the deeper significance of what we mean by uh, elemental spirits, uh, as well as in Jesus's uh, context, uh, this language of demons. This is a topic I hope resurfaces for a series of adult forums coming next year. It was suggested at our adult forum planning uh, meeting. And it's also presented, I think, in a way that does honor my third anniversary as your pastor, which is today. Uh, I started June 23rd, or, uh, 2016. So I'm going to go back into professorial mode and hope that this thing doesn't fall apart on the way. Please be gracious. 1527 was a difficult year for Martin Luther. Ten years prior, Luther had written his 95 Theses, a set of propositions originally intended for academic debate with other Augustinian monks, uh, a series of tweets, if you will, critical of the Catholic Church and the sale of indulgences. These tweets made their way across Europe in a matter of weeks thanks to a newly invented printing press, the Internet of Luther's time. They led to Luther's excommunication from the Catholic Church and his formal condemnation by Charles V, the then 19-year-old emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Luther's condemnation put his life in immediate danger and compelled the prince of his territory, a man named Frederick the Wise, who sided with Luther, to stage a kidnapping to put Luther in hiding for nearly a year until the controversy abated. Yet the danger Luther faced beginning in 1517 was nothing like he would encounter in 1527, a decade later. The outbreak of plague in his town of Wittenberg, the city where Luther lived. Luther's advice to his fellow Christians regarding what to do in the face of the plague, whether to stay and help or flee, appears in a treatise he wrote in 1527, and one that I read while in seminary. The advice he gives is quite sensible, quite reasonable. If your services are absolutely necessary, he says, stay. Your duty as a Christian is to help those in need. If your services are not absolutely necessary, Luther says, run. Leave this place. There is no reason for you to die unnecessarily or spread the plague to others. Something, Luther says, evil spirits were already doing. Evil spirits. What do you make of things that go bump in the night? Do you believe in ghosts or demons? Would you acknowledge with William Shakespeare that there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies? Would you take a tour through the parsonage as I did at the beginning, suspicious of haunting 
that parsonage initially, uh, incidentally, uh, we did a house blessing on it just to make sure. So Pastor Paul Hoffman and I went through every single room of that house with a candle and a, a book of prayers for the house blessing. I'm convinced the house is not haunted, but my next door neighbor's house is another story. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. <laughs> Ghosts, do you believe in them or do you see yourself as a quintessentially modern person? Kind, the biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann had in mind when he said, we cannot use electric lights and radios, he wrote this in 1958, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. The two are simply incompatible, he says. Now, Boltmann, unlike the conventional atheist, isn't going to throw the New Testament away. What he did was argue that given that our worldview and their worldview differ, they believe, for example, in a three-tiered universe such that the underworld or hell was beneath our feet. I used to say that when I was teaching, by the way, over the provost's office, and I think that's still true. <laughs> to hell with that university. Uh, I'm kidding. To purgatory instead. I'm kidding about that too. I like the faculty and the former students and the current students I'm sure are great. This is what happens when it's not in my notes. All right. Okay. I think Boltman raises a good question, and that is, what do we do with texts like Luke 8 or our gospel reading for today where Jesus casts demons out of a man into swine? What do we do with that as modern people? When I'm sick... I go to doctors who make me worse, but when I'm sick, I go to doctors, as do you. I don't go to the exorcist. I don't really believe the parsonage was haunted. I have a very hard time with anything affiliated with the paranormal, like with television shows, where they're just about to capture a glimpse of the ghost, and then, of course, at the last minute, it evades them. So I struggle with these texts as well. When Boltmann was reading them, he argued that we had to strip away their mythological packaging, their talk of a three-tiered universe, hell, earth, and heaven, to get to the essential message or proclamation of the New Testament. And that proclamation, he felt, was this. We are confronted by the question of how will we live our lives? Will we live them before God and something more? Or do we live simply for ourselves and out of our own self-sufficiency? Boltmann's conviction was that that message called the kerygma or the proclamation could be lifted out of the sands of mythology and preserved for modern people. But you had to do a lot of critical work. You had to, as Boltmann says, demythologize the New Testament. I want to take a different tactic today. What I want to suggest is that, in fact, there is no demythologization necessary, that these authors are already writing quite consciously aware of the metaphors that they're using, and Paul is no exception. All of that is to say that when Paul is talking about evil spirits or Jesus is casting out demons, I want you to hear this, something else is going on. There's something deeper more significant in the text. And our task as Christians is to mine these texts and uncover that often hidden meaning. So let's give it a shot. I'd like you to take a look at Galatians 
3.23 to 4.9. I extended this passage for our second reading because I believe it offers the best glimpse, perhaps, of the entirety of Paul's thought in the whole New Testament. So it's here that we have this window through which we can see what Paul was really getting after. I'd like to start actually a few lines back. You don't have this. You don't have to worry about it uh, to, to give you some context. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul identifies sin with an enslaving power. He speaks of the power of sin. If you go to Romans, which scholars are now referring to as Paul's last will and testament, my former colleague at Seattle University, which is a great school, actually. My former colleague at Seattle University, Matt Whitlock, says, this is really crass, but he says he wished Paul had died after he finished writing Galatians and that he had never written Romans. I don't exactly take that tack, and I'm not exactly sure why Matt thinks that, but I will say this. Romans offers us a kind of explanation that fills in some of the gaps we find in Paul's earlier writings, and this is one example. According to Paul in Romans 5.12, sin not understood as a misdeed act or missing the mark, but rather as an enslaving metaphysical power with quasi-personal characteristics enters the world through Adam's transgression. So in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, we hear for the first time a reference to sin. It says that sin is now, I love this, lurking behind the door. But sin is not what we normally think it is. It's not an act. It's not simply a misdeed. It's this kind of enslaving power that enters the world through Adam's transgression And remember, Adam for Paul is figurative. The word Adam in Hebrew is an abstract noun, which simply means, as I mentioned earlier, red clay or humanity. So sin, understood as a power, enters the world through humanity and enslaves humanity such that human beings do things that they know are not in their best interests. The best comparison in modern terms to sin, as Paul understood it, is addiction. Addiction leads to self-destruction. We find ourselves in its grasp, and what Paul is after is something that will free us from this way of living. And that's exactly what he's after in Galatians 3. By the time Paul ends this letter, he's going to be talking about how we are called to freedom, how we are called to new life, and we are called in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, chapter 3, verse 21, Paul identifies sin as an enslaving power that subjects us to its dominion, that keeps us in its captivity. The next question then is, okay, if that's the case, which Paul is using metaphorically to describe a common human experience, We all have the experience of being compelled to do something that will be either hurtful to ourselves and or other people. So Paul is using language from his time to try to make sense of this experience. The question then is, what has God, the source of life and being, done in the face of this power? And the answer is, verse 19, that God provided the law in response. Now, what is the law? That is a common set of expectations or rules that guide and inform human behavior. The law limits. The summation of the law is, of course, the Ten Commandments, which, as you know, were originally 15, 
but are not tent. That's just a little Mel Brooks reference. Again, it's not in the notes. I'm in a lot of pain. Please forgive me. Before Christ came, the law functioned as a kind of household slave. Our translation says disciplinarian. This is in verses 24 and 25. Some translations read custodian, who supervised the discipline of the child to protect the child from harmful behavior. This was the duty of household slaves in the ancient world. Their task, you might say, was to keep children from burning themselves on the stove or from getting in fights with with other children in the house. So the law functions, Paul says, in the same way. It curbs this appetite for destruction that we have. It sets limits to our behavior such that we don't bring further harm than is already present. Does that make sense? So sin is this enslaving power uh, that enters the world through Adam that subjects us to its bondage and compels us, as Paul says brilliantly in Romans 7, to do what we do not want to do. I often have that experience. When I get into an argument with somebody, for example, it often goes in a direction I don't want it to go. And when it happens that way, I often notice myself. And I think to myself, I can't stop. That's one of the reasons I'm not on Facebook much anymore, is that I, you ever have that experience where you get into a thread, it's usually political in nature or it's religion, right? Occupational hazard in my case, you have no excuse. Actually, you do because you're defending a different kind of Christianity, I'm sure, the kind that we're really finding in Scripture. In any case, you're on Facebook, you find yourself going down this path that you don't want to go down because you know that it's going to lead perhaps to uh, a breach in the relationship uh, you have with that person. So Paul's talking about that kind of thing here. He's talking about getting caught up in things that hurt us and harm us. God, he suggests, provides a law that helps curb these behaviors. And I would say, frankly, since we're talking about Spacebook, it's in many ways now the responsibility of internet custodians, you might call them, to curb our behavior to limit what's postable on Facebook because we can't stop ourselves. Do you see how this works? So Paul is talking about the same thing. God sends the law, these standards of behavior, to curb our appetite for destruction. Now that faith has come, however, there is no longer any need for this disciplinarian, for this custodian, for this household slave whose task it was to curb our, our behavior. We are not children of God, full members of the household of God. Paul reminds his audience that they are all one. Now, why would Paul have to do that? Because there was infighting between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. What Paul says is that just as believers put on clothing after baptism, so they are clothed with Christ. So I'm guessing that means there was full immersion baptism. The Baptists got it right full immersion baptism, and after the baptism occurred, the, uh, the newly baptized Christian would put back on uh, um, the rest of uh, her or his clothes. This dramatic sign opens the community to all people. Unlike, and I think this is fascinating, circumcision, which was available only to men. That is why in Galatians 3.28, Paul says brilliantly, you are no longer not only uh, Jew or Gentile, 
and not only slave or free, but male or female. This sign, as it were, of inclusion does away with the patriarchy that informed circumcision and makes a new community possible, one that dissolves the old distinctions. Paul then cites a baptismal confession. This is uh, Galatians 3.28, the passage to which I just referred. He writes, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Notice what he's doing. A community divided is brought together through the rite of baptism. So what is sin? It's the enslaving power. What's the purpose of the law? To curb that power so that we don't bring additional harm upon ourselves and others. We are still under sin's power, Paul is suggesting, at least until we are freed in Christ. Now, this is where I part ways with Paul. I would suggest that we are, uh, as Luther would argue, still sinners. Luther says we are sinners in fact, but saints in hope. Similustus et peccator. Paul seems to be moving beyond that paradox of both and, still perhaps caught up in a binary of old eon, new eon, of sinner and now saint. And Paul keeps getting surprised at why his communities aren't living the way they're supposed to. Why aren't you being inclusive, Paul says? Where is all this infighting coming from? That takes us then briefly now to chapter 4 and Paul's talk of elemental spirits, which was, if you remember 40 minutes ago, the uh, purpose of today's sermon, to talk about what they are. Listen closely. If the law restrained the people of Jewish faith, preventing further harm to them under the power of sin, what about the Gentiles? Norwegians, for example, who didn't have the law who lived according to their appetite, who were under sin's power and yoke. How do we address them? This is where it gets really fascinating. Paul refers to them as us in chapter uh, 4, verse 3. And here's what he says. While we were children, to whom or what were we, now the Gentiles, enslaved? Well, the answer is not the law, the disciplinarian, but elemental spirits. Well, what on earth are these elemental spirits? Scholars have a range of opinions. Some argue they were demonic powers, according to Paul, or demons. One writes uh, of them as chthonic powers, powers drawn up from the earth, or powers of the air. Others, reading Paul, argue that he meant natural elements, like the stars, which became objects of worship in pagan times. Still others argue that these elemental spirits were angels who were charged with a specific task, namely, according to chapter 3, verse 19, to deliver from God the law to an intermediary, which would, of course, have been Moses. So elemental spirits could have been these angels, or more broadly, angels presiding over the four elements, right? Earth, wind, fire, air. That's 
four. So difficult for me. Here's the uh, water is one of them. So did I say air, water, fire, and earth. Thank you. Okay, so I got the number right, but all the elements wrong. This is really not going well. All right, here's one interpretation I like. Victor Shepherd, a Protestant pastor, writes as follows. Listen closely. At one time, the Greek word elemental spirits, which is stoicheia, meant the alphabet, ABC. By extension, ABC came to mean the ABCs. So the elements of language, all right? The ABCs of anything at all. The ABCs of baseball are the most basic aspects of baseball. The first principle, the rudiments, which is another translation of elemental in this context, the rudimentary powers. As with sewing or music making or arithmetic, they're all guided by these elemental laws. The ABCs are the sort of basic information about anything, the elements of anything, the sort of thing children learn in elementary school. By the elemental spirits of the universe or the cosmos, Paul means the most basic understanding of how the universe operates. Think about bodily health. Eat well-balanced meals, wash your hands frequently, avoid excess fat in your diet. The most elemental stuff. Or of social situations. Don't criticize the boss so as to make him lose face. Don't criticize the university when you're still working for it. Don't criticize your parents-in-law at any time. Don't wear a Halloween mask into a bank. <laughs> Observing these principles merely lets us survive socially. Stoichia, the elemental principles of the universe, are the principles by which order is maintained. These elemental spirits, the ABCs of life, facilitate survival, but no more than survival. So notice what he's saying. They are there like the law to guide and inform and limit, indeed order, our behavior. This is woven into the fabric of the cosmos. It is elemental. We even have a periodic table of elements. This is as basic to the stuff of life as you can get. Yet there's a second meaning of stoichia, the elemental spirits of the universe. In the ancient world, the stoichia were also the forces that course through everyone's life, the forces that shape us socially, psychologically, politically. These forces determine ever so much how we think, what we expect, how we react, what we do. Think about me. I am a male. That means my thinking, my reacting, the social possibilities open to me are ever so largely determined by the centuries-old force of patriarchy. These forces, too, are part of what is meant by the elemental spirits. The Apostle Paul, in customary brevity, which makes him so hard to understand, states that all humankind is in bondage to these spirits. Whether the, me they, whether the mechanisms that let us survive, but no more than survive, or whether the forces surging over us at all times. Forces don't merely shape us, they limit us. They restrict us, they constrict us and confine us. They defy that abundant life when Jesus, which Jesus insists is alone worth calling life. Now there's still more, and I just wanna say this last thing. It's possible these elemental spirits or forces are binaries that are woven into the fabric of nature, like heat and cold, attraction and repulsion, informing uh, the Gentiles, for example, in the Roman law that restricts predicated upon binaries, slave or free, for example, male or female, for example. 
All of these binaries, Paul seems to be suggesting, come from nature itself. They inform the laws by which we live. What are our binaries that restrict? What are expectations or limits in our life that crush us? Mine is perfectionism. I stay up late on Saturday nights writing sermons because I want every word to be perfect, because I can't bear the possibility that I'm going to make a mistake, for example, when it comes to the four elements. I am under the, the, the burden of that law. How about you? How do you experience the burden of expectations? Do they make you feel inadequate, that you don't measure up? Well, thanks be to God, the Apostle Paul says, this isn't the last word. Jesus Christ came to free us from this burden, to free your poor pain pastor from the burden of perfectionism, to say after his friend Mark comes and tries to help him writing the sermon, it's enough, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to have to go with what I have. There's a freedom in that that Paul is talking about when he talks about being made one in the body of Christ, freed from the binaries that restrict us, free from the distinctions that curb the life we're called to live. We are called to freedom, and that is the gospel. Whether this freedom speaks to us from a Jewish perspective, bound by the law received uh, through Moses, or from a Gentile perspective, sourced in nature itself, binaries that inform, for example, all of our laws, Roman customs or American expectations. Let's go back to Boltmann, and then we close. You'll recall it was Boltmann who said, we cannot use electric lights and radios in the event of, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time believe in the spirit and the wonder world of the New Testament. There's some truth to that. There is cognitive dissonance here. But these days, I'm much more partial not to Rudolf Boltmann, but to John Dominic Crossan, a former Catholic priest and biblical scholar, who says this, ancient people dealt in metaphors, and we're the ones stupid enough to read what they said literally. Do you hear that? We always think, with a kind of modern arrogance, that we have to go back to the Bible and demythologize it, or uh, read it metaphorically, because those stupid people meant it literally. And what Crossan is doing is turning that around and saying, again, ancient people dealt in metaphor, and we're the ones stupid enough to read what they said literally. Think about what he's saying there. There is a reason after three years that one of my favorite week, moments of the week, apart from Sunday, after I've written my sermon, is the Bible study I have with other pastors because I've come to realize that there is so much rich metaphor in these texts that inform not what I do when it comes to dealing with an illness, but more so how I live or try to live my everyday life. Ways of seeing the world that invite us into fuller life. And I would suggest that's something that is not bound to a specific time but something that we're all longing for. Martin Luther, as you recall, uh, survived the plague of 1527. In fact, he survived three, 
And as our cantor may know, one of those three, it's possible, according to some scholars, that Luther wrote in the midst of plague, a mighty fortress is our God. Yes, he believed in evil spirits. That was part of his thought world in the 16th century. But that doesn't mean throw it all out. There's so much more there, not only in Luther, but especially in Scripture. Luther, like Paul, offers insights that go much deeper than much of what is out there today. Insights concerning what hold us back, what prevents us from flourishing, as well as what could lead us to what Jesus Christ calls abundant life. Amen.